Ladies and gentlemen, directors, members, and guests, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce you to our very special guest speaker. Since assuming the leadership of the Bank of Canada on February 1, 2008, Governor Mark Carney has made it a habit of speaking at both the Empire Club and the Canadian Club. On behalf of our members and board of directors, I'd like to thank you for your continuing to recognize these two sister clubs as a forum for opinion makers, informed conversation, and stimulating debate. In addition to his duties as Governor of the Bank of Canada, Mr. Carney now serves as Chairman of the Financial Stability Board and as a member of the Board of Directors of the Bank for International Settlements. Indeed, Mr. Carney has been risen to become among the most respected voices anywhere on financial regulation and monetary policy and the Canadian closest to the centre of efforts to solve the European debt crisis. Born and raised in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, he has come far from his roots. Mr. Carney is the son of a high school teacher and has taken education to heart, earning a doctor in economics from Oxford University. This education, plus 13 years with Goldman Sachs and then Canada's finance department has served him well, and to all our benefit. Today, Mr. Carney has been credited with protecting Canada from the worst effects on the recent international financial crisis, and he has earned recognition from the Financial Times and Time magazine as a top figure in the financial world. If monetary policy was music, Governor Mark Carney would be a rock star. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Governor Mark Carney. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Verity. Um, you're, you're all about to spend the next 25 minutes learning how far uh, monetary policy is from being music. Um, <laughs> so it was a very, very kind introduction. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, Jamie Watt for, for co-hosting. Uh, Your Grace, uh, Minister Duncan, uh, Premier Harris, Governor Crow, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there's a few people, I've met a few people in the audience who haven't been to a, uh, to a speech by a central banker. Um, you can tell the veterans, the Blackberries are out, the iPods are being fired up. Um, they know the only interesting part is the Q&A, and, uh, and for those newcomers who, uh, who still plan to listen, they may be in for a, a tough slog. Uh, Verity had mentioned that I had made a habit of uh, speaking to this joint group. Uh, it tends to be uh, in December, um, and uh, I have to say that that's not always the best timing. My first uh, speech here was uh, in the throes of the ABCP crisis in 2008. My next, uh, the following year, was on the perils of household debt. Uh, last year, I uh, was compelled to warn against the risks entailed in uh, low for long interest rates. Um, you know, I, I'm a big advocate, as the bank is, of central bank uh, transparency, but uh, in Toronto of late, uh, in December, uh, transparency equals reality, and reality bites. Um, so I'm going to continue with that theme. Uh, that today, these are trying times at the moment. Um, in our largest trading partner, households are undergoing a long process of balance sheet repair, and partly as a consequence, American demand for Canadian exports is about $30 billion lower than normal. In Europe, a renewed crisis is underway. An increasing number of countries are being forced to pay unsustainable rates on their borrowing. 
with a vicious leveraging process taking hold in its banking sector, the euro area is sinking into recession. And given ties of trade, finance, and confidence, the rest of the world is beginning to feel the effects. Most fundamentally, current events mark a rupture. Advanced economies have steadily increased leverage for decades, and that era is decisively over. The direction may be clear, but the magnitude and the abruptness of the process is not. It could be long and orderly, or it could be sharp and chaotic. And how we manage it will do much to determine our relative prosperity. So that's my subject today, which is how Canada can grow in this environment of global deleveraging. Les points clés de mon discours aujourd'hui sont on ne peut se fier uniquement au marché pour imposer une discipline concernant les leviers d'endettement. Ce n'est pas seulement l'encore de la dette qui importe, mais plutôt qui le dentier. En conséquence de ces erreurs, les économies avancées amorcent une période prolongée de réduction de leur dette. La politique monétaire doit être guidée par un engagement symétrique à atteindre la cible d'inflation. Et finalement, le rééquilibrage de la croissance mondiale constitue la meilleure façon de faciliter le désendettement. Mais cette perspective semble éloignée. Let me begin by explaining how we got here. It's important to get a sense of the scale of the challenge. Accumulating a mountain of debt that's now weighing on the advanced economies has been the work of a generation. Across the G7 countries, total non-financial debt has doubled since 1980 to 300% of GDP. Today, global public debt to global GDP is almost 80%, which is equivalent to levels that have historically been associated with widespread sovereign defaults. In general, the more that leverage is driven by households and governments, rather than companies, the less the productive capacity of the economy expands and the less sustainable the overall debt burden ultimately is. Another general lesson is that excessive private debts usually end up in the public sector one way or another. Private defaults often mean public rescues of banking sectors. Recessions fed by deleveraging usually prompt expansionary fiscal policies. And this means that the public debt of most advanced economies can be expected to rise above 90% which is a threshold historically associated with slower economic growth. And the cases of Europe and the United States are instructive. Today, total American non-financial debt is at levels last seen in the midst of the Great Depression. At 250% of GDP, that debt burden is equivalent to almost 120,000 for every American. There are several factors that drove this increase in American leverage, household leverage. Demographics, the stagnation of middle-class real wages, which meant households had to borrow if they wanted to maintain consumption growth. Financial innovation made it easier to do so, and the ready supply of foreign capital made it cheaper. But most importantly, complacency amongst individuals and institutions, a complacency fed by a long period of macroeconomic stability and rising asset prices, made this remorseless borrowing seem sensible. From an aggregate perspective, the euro area's debt metrics do not look as daunting. Europe's public debt burden is lower than that of the US and Japan, and, Europe, and the euro area's current account with the rest of the world is roughly balanced. But these aggregate measures mask large internal imbalances. As so often with debt, distribution matters. Europe's problems are partly a product of the initial success of the single currency. After its launch, cross-border lending exploded, 
easy money fed booms, which flattered government fiscal positions and supported bank balance sheets. Over time, competitiveness eroded. Euro-wide price stability masked large differences in national inflation rates, and labor costs in countries like Spain shot up relative to those in the core, particularly Germany. The resulting deterioration in competitiveness has made the continuation of past trends unsustainable, and growth models across Europe must now radically change. For years, central bankers have talked of surpluses and deficit countries, of creditors and debtors, and we were usually ignored. Indeed, during a boom, the debtor economy usually feels more vibrant and robust than its creditors. Some even thought current account deficits didn't matter, particularly if they were the product of private choices rather than public failings. But when the leverage cycle turns, the meanings and implications of these labels becomes tangible. Creditors examine more closely how their loans were spent, foreign financing constraints suddenly bind, and to repay, debtors must quickly restore competitiveness. Financial globalization has provided even greater scope for external imbalances to build. However, experience teaches that sustained large cross-border flows of capital usually lead to liquidity crunches. And that moment has arrived for many countries. Debt tolerance has decisively turned. The initially well-founded optimism that launched the decades-long credit boom has given way to a belated pessimism that seeks to reverse it. Hard experience has made it clear that financial markets can be inherently subject to cycles of boom and bust and cannot always be relied upon to get the debt levels right. And this is part of the rationale for micro and macro prudential regulation. It follows that backsliding on financial reform is not a solution to current problems. The challenge for the crisis economies is the lack of credit demand rather than the scarcity of its supply. Relaxing prudential regulations at this moment would run the risk of maintaining the situation that got us into this mess in the first place. As a result of deleveraging, the global economy risks entering a prolonged period of deficient demand. And if mishandled, it could lead to debt deflation and disorderly defaults, potentially triggering large transfers of wealth. History suggests that recessions involving financial crises tend to be deeper and their recoveries that follow take twice as long. And the current U.S. recovery is proving no exception. Indeed, it's only with justified comparisons to the Great Depression that the success of the U.S. policy response is apparent. But such counterfactuals, it could have been worse, are of cold comfort to American households who are seeking to rebuild $7 trillion in lost net worth. In Europe, a tough combination of necessary fiscal austerity and structural adjustment will mean falling wages, high unemployment, and tight credit conditions for some firms. Europe is unlikely to return to its pre-crisis level of GDP until a full five years after the start of its last recession. So the obvious question is what can be done to manage this process? Austerity is a ne necessary condition for rebalancing, but it's seldom sufficient. There are really only three options to reduce debt, restructuring, inflation, and growth. I'm not going to ask a show of hands for which one you favor. I presume it's, I presume it's on growth. Um, now, but whether, whether we like it or not, uh, debt restructuring may happen. 
And if it's to be done, it's best that it's done quickly, as policymakers should be careful about delaying the inevitable and merely funding the private exit. Some have suggested that higher inflation may be a way out from the burden of excessive debt, but this is a siren call. Moving opportunistically to a higher inflation target would risk unmooring inflation expectations and destroying the hard-won gains of price stability. With no easy way out, the basic challenge for central banks is to help sustain nominal aggregate demand, consistent with their inflation target, to help sustain nominal aggregate demand during a period of real adjustment. And in the bank's view, this is best accomplished through a flexible inflation targeting framework applied symmetrically to guard against both higher inflation and the possibility of deflation. The most palatable strategy is to reduce debt. To re the most palatable strategy to reduce debt is to increase growth, but in today's reality, the hurdles are large. Once leverage is high in one sector or one region, it's very hard to reduce it without at least temporarily increasing leverage elsewhere. In recent years, large fiscal expansions in the crisis economies have helped to sustain aggregate demand in the face of private deleveraging. However, the window for such Augustinian policy is rapidly closing. Few except the United States, by dint of its reserve currency status, can maintain it for much longer. In most of Europe today, further stimulus is no longer an option, with the bond markets demanding the contrary. There are no effective mechanisms that can produce the needed adjustment in the short term. Devaluation is impossible within the single currency area. Fiscal transfers and label mobility are currently insufficient, and structural reforms will take time. Action by central banks, the IMF, the EFSF, the ESM, can only create time for adjustment. They are not substitutes for it. To repay the creditors in the core, the debtors of the periphery, must regain competitiveness, and this will not be easy. Large shifts in relative inflation rates between debtor and creditor countries would result in real exchange rate depreciations between euro area countries. However, it's not clear that the ongoing deflation in the periphery and higher inflation in Germany would prove any more tolerable than it did between the UK and the US during the post-war uh, post gold standard of the 1920s and 30s. The route to restoring competitiveness is through fiscal and structural reforms. A sustained process of relative wage adjustment will be necessary, implying large declines in living standards in up to one-third of the euro area. In this regard, we welcome the measures announced last week by European authorities, which will go some way to addressing some of these issues. With the deleveraging economies under pressure, global growth will require global rebalancing. Creditor nations, mainly emerging markets, that have benefited from the debt-fueled demand boom in advanced economies must now pick up the baton. But this will be hard to accomplish without cooperation. As I've just suggested, advanced economies with deficient demand will find it hard to consolidate their fiscal positions and boost household savings without support from increased foreign demand. Meanwhile, emerging markets seeing their growth decelerate because of sagging demand in advanced economies are reluctant to abandon a strategy that has served them so well in the past and are refusing to let their exchange rates adjust in a material way. 
Both sides are now doubling down on losing strategies. As the bank has outlined before, relative to a cooperative solution embodied in the G20's action plan, the foregone output could be enormous, a lower world GDP by more than 7 trillion US dollars within five years. And needless to say, Canada has a big stake in avoiding this outcome. So to summarize thus far, the market cannot be solely relied upon to discipline leverage. It's not just the stock of debt that matters, but rather who holds it. Heavy reliance on cross-border flows, particularly when they fund consumption, usually prove unsustainable. As a consequence of these errors, advanced economies are entering a prolonged period of deleveraging. Central bank policy should be guided by a symmetric commitment to the inflation target. Central banks can only bridge adjustments consistent with that policy framework. They can't force the adjustments themselves. Rebalancing global growth is the best option to smooth deleveraging, but its prospects seem distant at the moment. So what does this mean for Canada? Well, Canada has distinguished itself through this debt supercycle, though there are some recent trends that bear watching. Over the past 20 years, our non-financial debt increased less than any other G7 country. In particular, government indebtedness fell sharply and corporate leverage is currently at a record low. In the run-up to the crisis, Canada's historically large reliance on foreign financing was also reduced to such an extent that our net external indebtedness was virtually eliminated for the first time in our history. Over the same period, Canadian households increased borrowing significantly, and Canadians have now collectively run a net financial deficit for more than a decade. In effect, Canadian households have been demanding funds from the rest of the economy rather than providing them to the rest of the economy, as had been the case since before the Leafs last won the Cup. <laughs> but Jim Leach is going to change all that. You're going to, you can change, you can, you, influential man, Jim, you can change all sides of this uh, equation. Um, Developments since, development since 2008 have reduced our margin of maneuver. In an environment of low interest rates and a well-functioning financial system, household debt has risen another 13 percentage points relative to income. As a result, Americans are now more indebted than, or Canadians are now more indebted than the Americans or the British. Our current account has also returned to deficit, mean, meaning that foreign debt has begun to creep back up. Much of the proceeds of these capital inflows seem to be largely on net going to fund Canadian household expenditures rather than building the productive capacity in our real economy. If we can take one lesson from the crisis, it's the reminder that channeling cheap and easy capital into unsustainable increases in consumption is at best unwise. Canada's relative virtue throughout the debt supercycle not sure I can use relative virtue in front of an archbishop, but uh, I just, it's an economic, it's an economic term. Um, sorry, I, I should have edited that out. Our absolute virtue, our relative virtue, uh, throughout the debt super cycle gives us a privileged position now that that cycle has turned. Unlike many others, we still have a risk-free rate and a well-functioning financial system to support our economy. And it's imperative that we maintain these advantages. Unfortunately, this means largely doing what we have been doing, individuals and institutions acting responsibly and policymakers executing against sound fiscal, monetary and regulatory frameworks. But it can't entirely be business as usual. Our strong position gives us a window of opportunity to make the adjustments needed to prosper 
in a deleveraging world, but opportunities are only valuable if they're seized. First and foremost, this means reducing our economy's reliance on debt-fueled household expenditures. To this end, since 2008, the federal government has taken a series of prudent and timely measures to tighten mortgage insurance requirements in order to support the long-term stability of the Canadian housing market. Canadian banks are also raising capital to comply with new regulations, the new Basel III regulations, before their international peers. Overall, Canadian authorities are cooperating closely and we will continue to monitor the financial situation of the household sector. But we should recognize that eliminating the household sector's net financial deficit would leave a noticeable gap in our economy. To spend what they earn, Canadian households would need to reduce their net financing needs by about $40 billion a year. To compensate could require over two years an additional three percentage points of export growth, four percentage points of government spending growth, or seven percentage points of investment growth additional. Any of these in isolation would be a tall order. Export markets remain challenging, and government cannot be expected to fill the gap on a sustained basis. But Canadian companies, with their balance sheets in historically rude health, have the means to do so and the incentives. Canadian firms should recognize four re realities. They're not as productive as they could be. They're underexposed to fast-growing emerging markets. Those in the commodity sector can expect relatively elevated prices for some time, and they can all benefit from one of the most resilient financial systems in the world. In a world where deleveraging holds back demand in our traditional markets, it's imperative for Canadian companies to invest in improving their productivity and to access new markets. This would be good for Canadian companies and it would be good for Canada. Indeed, it's the only sustainable option available. A virtuous circle of increased investment and increased productivity would increase the debt-carrying capacity of all through higher wages, greater profits, and higher government revenues. And this should be our common focus. The Bank of Canada is doing its part by fulfilling its mandate to keep inflation low, stable, and predictable so that Canadian households and Canadian firms can invest and plan for the future with confidence. The bank is also assisting the federal government in ensuring that Canada's world-leading financial system will be there for Canadians in bad times as well as good, and in pushing the G20 action plan because it is in Canada's interest. So to conclude, it sometimes makes sense to step back and to consider current challenges through the longer lens of financial history. And today's venue is an appropriate place to do so. A century ago, uh, when the Empire Club and the Canadian Club of Toronto would meet, although presumably not together a century ago, this is a new concord, uh, but when you would meet, uh, the first great leveraging of the Canadian economy was well underway. During the, the three decades before the First World War, Canada ran current account deficits, averaging an incredible 7% of GDP for three decades. These deficits were largely for investment and were principally financed by long-term debt and foreign investment, foreign direct investment. By the eve of the Great War, our net foreign liabilities reached 140% of GDP, but our productive capacity built over the decades helped to pay them off over time. Our obligations would again swell in the Great De Depression but in the ensuing boom, we were again able to shrink our net liabilities. And when we found ourselves in fiscal trouble in the 1990s, Canadians made tough decisions so that when Lehman fell, 
Canada was in the best fiscal shape in the G7. We must be careful, however, not to take too much comfort from these experiences. Past is not always prologue. In the past, demographics and productivity trends were more favorable than they are today. In the past, we deleveraged during times of strong global growth. In the past, our exchange rate acted as a valuable shock absorber, helping to smooth the rebuilding of competitiveness that can only sustainably be attained through productivity growth. Today, our demographics have turned, our productivity growth has slowed, and the world is undergoing a competitive deleveraging. In response, we could appear to prosper for a while by consuming beyond our means, and the market may let us do so for longer than we should. But if we yield to this temptation, eventually we too will face painful adjustments. It's better to rebalance from a position of strength to build the competitiveness and prosperity worthy of our nation. Thank you very much. You can turn your blackberries, put your blackberries down, and I'll now take questions. Thank you. Thank you very much for your remarks. We have time for a few quick questions. Mark Faircloth has got the, uh, the first one, EVP of Wholesale Banking at TD Securities. Uh, Governor, um, could you tell me if central bankers can actually effectively manage inflation uh, when they're involved in fiscal policy from time to time? Well, I think the, obviously the key is that they're not involved in fiscal policy from time to time. Um, and the arrangements that have been put in place in, in those countries where there has been unconventional policies, the best arrangements, let's, let's put it that way, uh, that uh, have been put in place in those countries where uh, central banks have made large-scale asset purchases, for example, uh, in the case of the Bank of England, uh, it is there's a very explicit fiscal decision that is made um, through a, an exchange of letters between the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Governor of the Bank of England um, that sets the parameters for the activity. Um, the decisions on the scale of the deficit, the ultimate uh, exposure um, to the budget uh, in the short term uh, for fluctuations in the securities that are purchased, uh, or in the case of credit easing, which the Bank of England has also done, are explicitly on the um, uh, are explicitly sanctioned by the um, uh, by the fiscal authority as is appropriate, um, and then the actual operational decisions of the timing, the order of magnitude within that framework is done by the Bank of England. Um, so that separation is 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 essential. Uh, that's I guess the first point, and it's it's easily done. Um, but the the I guess the premise of the question. I'm not sure. I, maybe I shouldn't have allowed the premise of the question to survive, but. Uh, it's a little late for that now that I've answered it. Um, uh, answered it somewhat. Uh, but central banks, I think, just to repeat what I said in the speech, the best way in any of these situations to manage, um, uh, to discharge a central bank's responsibilities is to focus on its price stability mandate. Um, and in some economies where they're under severe deleveraging, they may run out of conventional tools. They may have to use unconventional tools but the use of those unconventional tools, if it has a fiscal cost, should be agreed with the fiscal authority because that ultimately, from the accountability perspective, but the use and deployment, the size, the timing, the retirement should all be governed by the price stability mandate. Um, and that way, there's no confusion about what the objective is. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the central bank has a role, but it, it is not the solution. 
Our next question is from Amanda Lang, National Business Correspondent from the CBC. Governor, uh, you describe a challenge to, uh, can it just feel like a bit of a ringer to you? Yeah, this is, this is a total ringer. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a ringer. You're describing... Anyone, anyone else? Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The challenge you present to Canadian businesses is genuine. They've got cash on hand. We need to see yep. them invest. We need to see them diversify. You note that as governor of the Bank of Canada, you've done everything you can. It may be that your other role is the, the more valuable one to getting businesses feeling confident, and that's the head of the FSB. And so I would ask you, if you as you survey the world, is there a single thing, if you could do one thing to make the, the globe safer for businesses, to restore their confidence, what would be the regulation or the change that you would put in place today? Hmm. <laughs> I could do one thing. No, I, I, I do them all, Amanda. I would <laughs> implement the entirety of, uh, of uh, the last FSB uh, press release because it's all there. No, I, what, what's necessary? What, well, the core point here is, is not to confuse, not that you're doing it, but uh, is not to confuse um, what's happening because of these broader macroeconomic forces with what's necessary to uh, build a resilient financial system. It, there are people who will make an argument that now is not the time to build capital in banks that have no capital. Well, I mean, this is foolish. It's absolutely foolish. It might not be the opportune time for a shareholder in a specific institution um, to have new shareholders joining them along, uh, alongside. But it's absolutely necessary to have institutions adequately capital, uh, capitalized. Um, and so any sense, in our, my opinion, and the opinion of the FSB more broadly, of backsliding on implementing the Basel III capital reforms the timetable for that is, is misplaced. This is not the issue. The issue is in some uh, jurisdictions an absence of capital so business can lend. Um, what is not a reform but what's necessary in some of these environments is to ensure that there is adequate liquidity for the institution so that during this period of turbulence in Europe, for example, um, that um, there is not the prospect of a sudden, sudden stop on liquidity. And the ECB took some incredibly important measures last week by expanding the collateral, uh, both the, the size of the collateral and the term of uh, their collateralized lending, uh, which, uh, which provide further assurance. If I can bring it back to Canada, um, what we have in Canada is two things on both those fronts. One is OSFIs uh, looking to Canadian banks to meet the toughest definition of Basel III, not by 2019, not on the, on the, on the simple time frame, but by 2013. It's a much higher standard than, than, than most other jurisdictions. So it means, for Canadian business, you starting with well-capitalized banks, and they will be even better, cap, better capitalized by then. And then secondly, the liquidity positions of Canadian institutions has dramatically improved from a strong starting point in 2008 to now. So again, the combination of those two um, is, is, why, is one of the reasons why we can stand here and say, listen, from a business perspective, if you have an investment opportunity, take the investment opportunity because the system is going to be there. And our last question from Peter Mansbridge. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, sorry. Did I cut you off? I'm sorry. Did I cut you off? <laughs> Hang on. He gets to finish. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Actually, actually, Kevin O'Leary is standing by as well. <laughs> He'll be next. Um, Governor, you just mentioned then and you mentioned earlier in your remarks about the uh, European situation. Uh, a lot of people, including you, have spent most of the last year trying to ring-fence Europe uh, on the debt crisis issue in terms of its impact elsewhere. 
you seem to be suggesting today that that's not going to be possible. Uh, the bond markets today seem to be suggesting contagion once again. Where are you on this? Uh, is, it, is Europe being successfully ring-fenced or not? Uh, a couple of things. Thank you for your question, Peter. Um, <laughs> um, you can never fully ring-fence what, in effect, in the broader sense of the European Union, is the largest economy in the world, still the largest economy on a market basis in the world, um, just like you could never successfully ring-fence the U.S. economy. Uh, impacts on the rest of the world. Um, so it, it, it needs to be in, in that context. That, that reality needs to be recognized first. Um, the, the second thing is, which held uh, months ago, um, held last week, still holds today, is that um, Europe as a whole still retains uh, the means uh, to address its problem. Um, the challenge is deploying those means as effectively and efficiently as possible. Um, we're encouraged by um, the use of the, the, the potential uh, for a more active role of the IMF uh, that was signaled in, in last week's uh, uh, decisions of heads, but we have to see the implementation. Um, but what I'm trying to say in the speech, what I was trying to say in the speech, was to distinguish between the shorter-term adjustment issues, which are considerable, and which your question goes to, and the longer-term adjustment issues, which have to happen. In the end, uh, well, there are fundamental issues of, of fiscal austerity, budget balance, uh, returning to budget balance, uh, sustainable fiscal positions, et cetera. Absolute, without question, those are issues. Um, in the absence of addressing the internal balance of payments in Europe in a sustainable way, uh, there will be renewed challenges. And so uh, that horizon needs to be brought into it, and that focus needs to be retained. Um, you can't legislate competitiveness. Um, and, uh, and, and so the, uh, the effort in the speech was to draw attention more to the medium term and then to point out that that is a dynamic that holds for every economy in the world and uh, a, a trend or an issue that uh, we have to watch here as well. Close enough. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Thank you. I think we... Um We may have witnessed today a career-limiting move on the part of Amanda Lang. She's here at the front and Peter's by the kitchen. <laughs> As it should be. Before I thank our guests, let me offer special thanks to Verity Craig and her colleagues at our sister club, the Empire Club of Canada. Lunches like this are an enormous amount of logistical work work always made easy when our two organizations work together. So thank you, Verity, very much. Et merci, Gouverneur. Thank you on behalf of the National Forum for being here today. Let me see if I got your message right. Uh, the world is in a big mess. Canada is in a pretty good place. We've got a window to act. The options for stimulus are limited. The people in this room can't sit on their hands, they need to invest, and then all will be well. Is that about right? <laughs> Depuis votre nomination à la poste de gouverneur du Banque du Canada, le monde a rencontré des temps financiers difficiles. 
Your remarks, Governor, today dealing with the situation not only here in Canada, but right around the world, demonstrate your uncommon understanding of private sector economics and how they intersect with and influence the public sector itself. A modest people, we Canadians, but we do know how to cheer. And just as we cheer on and take vicarious pride in our hockey players at the World Juniors or our athletes at the Olympics, so do we cheer on and take pride in the success you and by extension Canada have had on the world stage. Vous avez reçu beaucoup d'honneurs internationaux en raison de la direction que vous avez fournir au monde. Governor, we stand a bit taller and we walk a bit prouder because of your contributions to public life. For that and being with us today, you have our thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jamie. As a token of our appreciation on behalf of the Empire Club, I'd like to present you with a copy of Who Said That? It's a selection of quotes and notes from a hundred years of speeches at the Empire Club. I'd like to thank TD Bank Financial and Deloitte & Touche for sponsoring our event today. I would also like to thank Campbell Strategies for sponsoring our VIP reception and Northstar for sponsoring our student table this afternoon. I'd like to thank the National Post as our print media sponsor. This meeting will be carried and aired on Rogers TV and we're very grateful for their support. Thank you for coming. We look forward to seeing you again. This meeting is adjourned. <laughs>